Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. This week, we are going to be getting into the Moore's murders, which is super interesting. We are also sipping a personal favorite, which is a blended gold rush. Now, I'm not sure if this is just like a hometown original drink or if this is everywhere, but it is so good. It's basically just like a vanilla caramel frap, but the secret is there's chocolate covered coffee beans blended into it and yum. It is definitely so good. You really want to try this one out. Okay, Casey. This is not only my favorite drink so far that we have featured, but I also had an epiphany. (laughs) So, you know, when you go through the drive-thru at your local coffee shop, right? And they're talking to you and talking and talking and talking because they're trying to stall out, right? While they're making your drink and just trying to be friendly, earn their money, you know, make sure you give them a good tip, that kind of stuff. Also, tip your baristas. But I feel like we are that stop for them. (laughs) We are your coffee baristas. We're recommending you guys the coffee. We're giving you that conversation while you're sipping on your caffeine. And also, we have a donate button so you can go and give us a tip. That's perfect. That's exactly what it is. (laughs) (laughs) We're barista slash podcasters. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I love that. (laughs) This week, we are shouting out Robbie F., Shailene H., and Jeff N., They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated, so we want to thank you guys so much. We love you guys, and we are so grateful for all the support you guys have been giving us with our podcast. For the chance to get a shout-out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at CrimeAddictsPod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you'll find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find today's delicious recipe. There's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you are an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Between July 1963 and October 1965, five children were brutally murdered in and around what is now Greater Manchester, England. That's right, this week we are traveling across the big blue pond to our neighbors to the east. The murders are so named because of the five victims. Three were discovered in graves dug in Saddleworth Moor. The body of a fourth victim is also suspected to be buried there, but has never been found. The murders, reported in almost every English-language newspaper in the world, were the result of what Malcolm McCulloch, professor of forensic psychiatry at Cardiff University, called a, quote, concatenation of circumstances, end quote, which brought together a, quote, young woman with a tough personality taught to hand out and receive violence from an early age and a sexually sadistic psychopath, end quote. Filet à deux defined as the presence of the same or similar delusional ideas in two persons closely associated with one another. In our case this week, it's safe to say that neither partner would be capable of murder if it were not for the stimulus of the other. 
So who is the tough personality and sexually sadistic psychopath? That would be none other than Myra Henley and Ian Brady. Let's take a look at who they are so that when we talk about the victims, we know the type of people they had encountered on their last day alive. Myra Henley was born on July 23, 1942 in Gorton, an industrial district of Manchester, England, dominated by Victoria slum housing. Her parents were Nellie and Bob Henley. Henley's father had served with the Parachute Regiment and was stationed in North Africa, Cyprus, and Italy during the Second World War. He was gone for the first three years of Henley's life, so she and her mother lived with her maternal grandmother, Ellen Mayberry, who helped look after Henley while Nellie went to work as a machinist. When Bob returned, they bought their own home just around the corner from Nellie's mother. Bob had trouble readjusting to civilian life and would spend most of the time he wasn't working as a laborer in the local pub. Bob was an alcoholic who was frequently violent towards his wife and children. The family home was in poor condition, and Henley was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double bed. Their living situation deteriorated further when Henley's sister, Maureen, was born in August 1946. And the following year, Henley, at five years old, was sent to live with her grandmother, Ellen. Bob had been known as a hard man while in the army, and he expected his daughter to be equally tough. He taught her how to fight and insisted that she stick up for herself. When Henley was about eight years old, a local boy scratched her cheeks with his fingernails, drawing blood. She burst into tears and ran to her father, who threatened to, quote, leather her if she did not retaliate and punch him back. Henley found the boy and knocked him down with a series of punches. As she wrote later, quote, at eight years old, I'd scored my first victory, end quote. While the move to her grandmother's home solved many of the family's problems, such as Ellen no longer being lonely, the pressure on Bob and Nellie was relieved considerably, and Henley enjoyed the devoted attention of her grandmother. It also meant that Henley and her father's relationship never fully developed. Malcolm McCulloch, professor of forensic psychiatry at Cardiff University, has written that Henley's relationship with her father brutalized her. She was not only used to violence in the home, but rewarded for it outside. When this appears at a young age, it can distort a person's reaction to such situations for life. Henley started school at Peacock Street Primary School at the age of five. Here she was considered a mature and sensible girl, although her audience was poor due to her grandmother's tendency to allow her to stay home on the slightest pretense. Her many absences led to her not gaining the necessary grades to attend the local grammar school. Instead, she went to Ryder Brow Secondary Modern. Although her poor attendance record continued in high school, she was consistently in the A stream in all of her subjects. During this period, she exhibited some talent for creative writing and poetry. She loved sports and athletics and was a good swimmer. In appearance and personality, Henley was not considered particularly feminine and was given the nickname Square Arse <laughs> because of her broad hips. We call that ass here in the United States. Myra, Myra no buns. Oh my God. <laughs> She was also teased about the shape of her nose. Her reputation as being a mature and sensible girl meant that she was a popular babysitter during her teens. 
Parents and children alike were delighted if Henley was to be their babysitter. She was very capable and demonstrated a genuine love of children. Yikes. At the age of 15, Henley befriended Michael Higgins, a timid and fragile 13-year-old boy whom she looked after and protected as if he were her younger brother. As far as she was concerned, they would be lifelong friends. In June 1957, Higgins invited Hindley to go swimming with friends at a local disused reservoir, but she instead went out elsewhere with another friend, Pat Jepson. Higgins drowned in the reservoir that day, and Hindley was deeply upset and blamed herself because she was a good swimmer, and she felt that she might have been able to save him if she had gone. Over the next few weeks, Hindley was inconsolable, fluctuating between hysteria and depression she cried dressed in black went to church nightly to light a candle for higgins and collected money from neighbors for a wreath for his funeral her family was troubled by what they perceived as her overreaction telling her that she must control herself the funeral was held at saint francis's monastery in gorton lane where Henley was baptized a Catholic on August 16, 1942, when she was only a few weeks old. Henley's father insisted she be baptized Catholic, and her mother agreed only on the condition that she not be sent to a Catholic school. Her mother believed, quote, all the monks taught was the catechism, end quote. Her grief was reflected in her conversion to Roman Catholicism, Higgins' religion, and the deterioration of her schoolwork. Henley was increasingly drawn to the Roman Catholic Church after she started at Ryder Brow Secondary Modern and began taking instruction from formal reception into the church soon after Higgins' funeral. She took the confirmation name of Veronica and received her first communion in November 1958. Henley also became a godparent to Higgins' nephew, Anthony John. It was not long after Higgins' death that she left school as she was not considered bright enough to stay on to complete her O-levels, despite an IQ of 107. Henley's first job was as a junior clerk at Lawrence Scott and Electrometers, an electrical engineering firm. She ran errands, typed, made tea, and was well-liked enough that when she lost her first week's wage packet, the other girls took up a collection to replace it. During this time, Myra was much like other Gorton girls in their teens. She would go to dances and cafes, listen to rock and roll, flirted with boys, and had the occasional cigarette. Her appearance became more important to her, and it was at this time that she began to bleach her hair and wear dark makeup in an attempt to appear older. She became engaged after a short courtship with Ronnie Sinclair from Christmas 1958 and became engaged at age 17, but called it off several months later after deciding Sinclair was immature and unable to provide her with the life she wanted because she wanted something more exciting. Her search began with an application for entrance forms to the Navy and the Army, but she never sent them in. Henley took weekly judo lessons at a local school, but found partners reluctant to train with her as she was often slow to release the grip, a.k.a. she was choking these people out with no remorse. She took a job at Bratby and Hinchcliffe, an engineering company in Gorton, but was dismissed for absenteeism after only six months. She considered working as a nanny in America, but never followed it through. 
She went off to London to search for a job, but that too bore no fruit. Two years had passed before something new and exciting finally came to her. But let's pause here and talk about Ian Brady. Casey? Ian Brady was born in the Rotten Row Maternity Hospital in Glasgow, Scotland, as Ian Duncan Stewart on January 2nd, 1938. His mother, Margaret Peggy Stewart, was an unmarried tea room waitress. The identity of Ian's father has never been reliably ascertained, although his mother said he was a reporter working for Glasgow newspaper who died three months before Ian was born. With no husband to support her, Peggy found it necessary to continue working as a waitress, even if only part-time. She was often unable to afford a babysitter, so Peggy would sometimes have to leave baby Ian at home alone. Just crazy. It did not take her long to realize that she could not cope with her baby alone and hoped to spare her son the social stigma of his illegitimacy. To solve the problem, she advertised for a permanent babysitter to take Ian into their home, providing the care and attention she was unable to give him. Mary and John Sloan answered the advertisement. They had four children of their own and seemed trustworthy and caring. At the age of four months, Ian was unofficially adopted by the couple. Peggy signed over Ian's welfare payments to them and arranged to visit every Sunday. As each Sunday came around, Peggy would bring gifts for her growing son, but never told him that she was his mother. Mary Sloan was always auntie or ma. As time passed, Peggy's visits became less frequent and finally stopped altogether when Ian was 12 years old. Early on, Ian showed troubling signs of dysfunctional behavior and moodiness. When he could not have his way, he would throw violent tantrums, which sometimes ended with him banging his head on the wall. At Camden Street Primary School, Ian was considered by his teachers to be a bright child, but he never tried as hard as he could have. The other children saw him as different, secretive, and an outsider. He didn't play sports like the other boys and was considered a sissy. <laughs> At age nine, his family visited Loch Lomond, which translates to Lake of the Elms and is a freshwater Scottish lake. They spent the day picnicking. After lunch, the Sloans napped in the grass. When they woke, Ian was gone. They saw him standing 500 yards away at the top of a steep slope. For an hour, he stood there, silhouetted against the giant sky. They called and whistled to him, but could not attract his attention. When the two Sloan boys climbed to the top of the hill to fetch him, he told them to go home without him. He wanted to be alone. He had felt himself alone at the center of a vast, limitless territory. It was his. It belonged to him. He was filled with a sense of power and strength. In the midst of all this emptiness, he was a master and king. A few months later, the family moved to a house at Pollock, which is a large housing estate on the southwestern side of Glasgow, Scotland. At the age of 11, Ian passed his entrance exams into Shawlands Academy, a school for pupils with above-average intelligence. His potential was never realized. However, as he was lazy, would not apply himself and began to misbehave. He started smoking, virtually gave up on his schoolwork, and before long was in trouble with the police. It was at this time his fascination with the Second World War, particularly the Nazis, began to emerge. 
The books he read and the subject of his conversation was always related to Nazis. Even his play was influenced by his obsession. He always insisted on playing a German in war games with his friends. He often asked the other boys for souvenirs that their fathers brought back from the war. It was at this time that Ian also became known for perverse and sadistic tendencies, including bullying smaller children and torturing animals in a variety of grotesque ways. Although he later objected the accusations about torturing animals. Others in the neighborhood caught on to the boy's socially unacceptable origins, and this, coupled with his sullen, unsociable personality and his lack of skill at football, made him unpopular with the local children. Ian soon figured out for himself who Peggy Stewart really was, and likewise deduced that the Sloans were not his real family. He came to resent his illegitimacy and began to see himself as a rebellious outsider, not bound by the same rules as others. As a teenager, he twice appeared before a juvenile court for housebreaking. He left the academy aged 15 and took a job as a tea boy at a Heartland and Wolf shipyard in Govan. Nine months later, he began working as a butcher's messenger boy. Brady had a girlfriend, Evelyn Grant, but their relationship ended when he threatened her with a flick knife after she visited a dance with another boy. He again appeared before the court, this time with nine charges against him, and two months before his 17th birthday, he was placed on probation, on a condition only that he lives with his biological mother. So at this point, Ian's mother had moved to Manchester and had not visited for four years, how she was previously visiting every Sunday. He hadn't seen her in many years. She had married an Irish fruit merchant named Patrick Brady, and Ian had never met this man. Once he moved there, he attempted to gain a sense of belonging to his new family by changing his name from Stuart to Brady. And although he did not get it on particularly well with his stepfather, he took a job that Patrick found for him as a porter at the local market. The sense that he didn't belong persisted, however, and he searched for direction through his reading. Within books such as Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, the works of Marquise de Sade, and sadistic titles such as Justine, The Kiss of the Whip, and The Torture Chamber, Brady discovered something he could relate to, something exciting. About this time, he worked as a butcher's assistant, and some commentators have surmised that the experience of regularly cutting meat away from the bone may have nurtured his growing interest in the physical acts of mutilation and murder. He also began drinking heavily and frequenting the cinema, and often found himself in need of extra spending money to support these new habits. Brady also gambled on horse races. Within a year of moving to Manchester, Brady was caught with a sack full of lead seals he had stolen and was trying to smuggle out of the market. The courts were not so lenient this time, and he was sentenced to two years in a borstal, which is an institution for young offenders. There were no places available for three months, so he was sent to Strangeways Prison in Manchester, where at the age of 17, he learned quickly to toughen up. He was moved to Hatfield Borstal in Yorkshire, where the regime was much lighter. 
Brady, taking advantage of the reduction in security, began brewing and drinking his own alcohol and running gambling books. A drunken scuffle with a warder landed him in a much harder borstal in Hull Prison. Here, he actively set out to learn more of the criminal way of life from which he intended to make a great deal of money. His expectations were so high that he even took courses in bookkeeping. When he was released in November 1957, his family noticed that he was even more silent and brooding than before. He was unemployed for several months before he obtained work as a laborer for six months. While he continued in his attempts to find a criminal scheme that would make him rich, he decided to put his bookkeeping skills to legitimate use. In January 1959, he began to work as a stock clerk at Millward's Merchandising, a wholesale chemical distribution company based in Gorton. He was regarded by his colleagues as a quiet, punctual, but short-tempered young man. And this is where these two independent roads collide into complete chaos. About two years later, in January 1961, the 18-year-old Henley joined Millwards as a typist. She soon became infatuated with Brady, despite learning that he had a criminal record. Henley began a diary, and although she had dates with other men, some of her entries detail her fascination with Brady, to whom she eventually spoke for the first time on July 27th. Over the next few months, she continued to make entries. She grew increasingly disillusioned with him until December 22nd at the office Christmas party when Brady had a few drinks and asked her on a date to the cinema. Their dates followed a regular pattern, a trip to the cinema, usually to watch an X-rated film, then back to Henley's house to drink German wine. As the weeks went by, he played her records of Hitler's marching songs, and the pair spent their work lunch breaks reading aloud to one another from the accounts of Nazi atrocities. The relationship between Brady and Henley developed in concert with Brady's increasingly rabid identification with Nazi-era atrocities and his growing sadomasochistic sexual appetite. Henley began to emulate the ideal Aryan perfection, bleaching her hair blonde and applying thick crimson lipstick. She expressed concern that some aspects of Brady's character in a letter to her childhood friend, she mentioned an incident where she had been drugged by Brady, but also wrote of her obsession with him. A few months later, she asked her friend to destroy the letter. Brady became her first lover and she was soon totally obsessed with him, soaking up all of his distorted philosophical theories. Her greatest desire was to please him. Can I just throw in here that that is a major red flag? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like they're just popping off left and right. Red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hindsight, I guess. Right. 2020. <laughs> but yeah, we're like sitting here like, mm, run away. But... <laughs> <laughs> With such a devoted audience, Brady's ideas became increasingly paranoid and outrageous. But Henley was without discernment. When he told her there was no God, she stopped going to church. And when he told her that rape and murder were not wrong, that in fact murder was the, quote, supreme pleasure, she did not question it. Her personality had become totally fused with his. Family, friends, and colleagues quickly noticed the changes in her. At work, she became surly, overbearing, and aggressive. Henley began to change her appearance further, wearing clothing considered risque. <laughs> 
such as high boots, short skirts, and leather jackets, and the two became less sociable to their colleagues. Early in 1963, Brady put Henley's blind acceptance of his ideas to the test. He began planning a bank robbery and needed her to be his getaway driver. Immediately, Henley began driving lessons. Henley also befriended George Clitheroe, the president of the Cheadle Rifle Club, and on several occasions visited two local shooting ranges. Clitheroe, although puzzled by her interest, arranged for her to buy a twenty-two rifle from a gun merchant in Manchester. She also asked to join a pistol club, but she was a poor shot and allegedly often bad-tempered, so Clitheroe told her that she was not suitable. She did, though, manage to purchase a Webley forty-five and a Smith & Wesson thirty-eight from other members of the club. The robbery was never carried out, but Brady's purpose had been fulfilled. Hinley had shown herself willing. Brady knew she was ready to cement their relationship. Eventually, they became interested in photography. Brady already owned a box brownie, which he used to take photographs of Henley and her dog, Puppet, but he upgraded to a more sophisticated model and also purchased lights and darkroom equipment. The pair took photographs of each other that were explicit as they were pornographic in nature. For Henley, this demonstrated a marked change from her earlier more shy and prudish nature. Henley later claimed that Brady had taken the compromising pictures of her while she was unconscious and subsequently used them to blackmail her into participating in the murders. However, Brady has strenuously denied this suggestion and claims that Henley was indeed a willing and enthusiastic participant in both the photographs and the murders. According to those police investigators who had examined the photographs, Henley appears to be a fully complicit camera subject and is clearly enjoying herself. They later took pictures of each other standing or kneeling at the Moreland burial sites of their victims. Apparently, one of their earliest ambitions was to crack the illicit amateur pornography market, selling obscene photographs of their bizarre sexual antics with each other. But for whatever reason, this enterprise failed. Henley claimed that Brady began to talk about, quote, committing the perfect murder in July 1963, and often spoke to her about Meyer Levin's Compulsion, published in 1956. The novel, a fictionalized account of the Leopold and Loeb case, tells the story of two young men from well-to-do families who attempt to carry out the perfect murder of a 12-year-old boy and who escape the death penalty because of their age. The full extent of Brady and Henley's killing spree did not come to light until their confessions in 1985, as both had, until then, maintained their innocence. Now that we know who we are dealing with between Henley and Brady, let's now talk about each of their victims and what we know about them. By June 1963, Brady had moved in with Henley at her grandmother's house on Bangkok Street. And on July 12, 1963, the two murdered their first victim. That evening, Brady told Henley that he wanted to, quote, commit his perfect murder. He told her to drive the van around the local area while he followed behind on his motorcycle. When he spotted a likely victim, he would flash his headlight and Henley has to stop and offer that person a lift. Driving down Gorton Lane, Brady saw a young girl walking towards them. He signaled Henley to stop, which she did not do until she had passed the girl. Brady drew up alongside on his motorbike, demanding to know why she had not offered that girl a lit, to which Henley replied that she recognized her as Mary Ruck, a near neighbor of her mother. 
Shortly after 8 p.m., continuing down Froxmer Street, Brady spotted a girl wearing a pale blue coat and white high-heeled shoes walking away from them, and once again signaled for the van to stop. Henley recognized the girl as Pauline Reed, a friend of her younger sister, Maureen. Pauline was on her way to the dance at the Rail Workers Social Club in Krampus and got into the van with Henley, who then asked if she would mind helping to search for an expensive glove she had lost on the saddle worth more. Pauline said she was in no great hurry and agreed. At age 16, Pauline Reed was older than Marie Ruck and Henley realized that there would be less of a hue and cry over the disappearance of a teenager than there would be over a seven or eight year old child. When the van reached the moor, Henley stopped and Brady arrived shortly afterwards on his motorcycle. She introduced him to Pauline as her boyfriend and said that he had come to help find the missing glove. Brady took Pauline onto the moor while Henley waited in the van. After about 30 minutes, Brady returned alone and took Henley to the spot where Pauline lay dying, her throat cut. He told her to stay with Pauline while he fetched a spade he had hidden nearby on a previous visit to the moor to bury the body. Henley noticed that Pauline's coat was undone and her clothes were in disarray. She had guessed from the time he had taken that Brady had sexually assaulted her then smashed her skull with a shovel and slashed her throat so violently that she was almost decapitated. Brady then buried Pauline's body on the moor where it remained for over 20 years. Returning home from the moor in the van, they had loaded the motorcycle into the back. Brady and Henley passed Reed's mother, Joan, accompanied by her son, Paul, searching the streets for Pauline. The Reed had called the police the next morning when the night-long search had failed to find any trace of their daughter. The police search proved to be just as fruitless and seemed that Pauline had simply disappeared. Pauline had been in a short relationship with David Smith, a local boy with three criminal convictions for minor crimes. Police could find nobody who had seen Pauline before the disappearance, and although the 15-year-old Smith was questioned by police, he was cleared of any involvement in her death. On November 23, 1963, Brady and Henley struck again. This time, the victim was 12-year-old John Kilbride. Like many children, he had been warned not to go away with strange men, but not about strange women. John and his friend John Ryan had gone to the local cinema for the afternoon, followed by going to the market in Ashton-under-Line to see if they could earn some pocket money helping the stallholders to pack up. His friend eventually had to leave to catch his bus home. When John was approached by Henley at the market, John agreed to go with her to help carry some boxes. Brady was sitting in the back of the car. When they reached the moors, he took the child with him while Henley waited in the car. On the moor, Brady subjected John to a sexual assault and attempted to slit his neck with a knife that had a six-inch serrated blade, but it didn't work. So Brady strangled him to death with a piece of string, possibly a shoelace, and buried his body in a shallow grave. His body was found there on October 21st, 1965. The body was clothed, but the jeans and underpants that he had been wearing were pulled down to mid-thigh and the underpants appeared to be knotted in the back. When John did not return home for dinner, his parents, Sheila and Patrick, called the police. For the second time, a major search was conducted. A huge search was undertaken, with over 700 statements taken and 500 missing posters printed. 
Eight days after he failed to return home, 2,000 volunteers scoured waste ground and derelict building. No sign of John could be found. All his parents knew was that John didn't come home. Henley hired, a.k.a. rented, a van for a week after John went missing. And again, on December 21st, 1963, apparently to make sure that the burial sites had not been disturbed. In February 1964, she bought a second-hand Austin Traveler, but soon traded it for a minivan. Four months later, another child went missing. June 16, 1964 was a Tuesday, and every Tuesday evening, 12-year-old Keith Bennett would go to his grandmother's home to spend the night. This Tuesday was no different, except that it was four days after his 12th birthday. As his grandmother's house was only a mile away, he would walk by himself. His mother watched him over the crossing and onto Stockport Road, then left him to go to Bingo in the opposite direction. When Keith didn't arrive at his grandmother Winnie's house, she assumed that his mother had decided not to send him. Keith's disappearance was not discovered until the next morning when Winnie arrived at her daughter's home without Keith. Again, the police were called. And again, a search was conducted, and again, it seemed that a child had disappeared without a trace. The fair-headed boy accepted a lift from Henley near Stockport Road in Longsight, and she drove to Saddleworth Moor and asked him to help search for a lost glove. Brady then lured Keith into a ravine. There, he sexually assaulted the child and strangled him with a piece of string before burying his body. Henley stood above the ravine and watched the murder. His stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, became a suspect. In the two years following Bennett's disappearance, Johnson was taken in for questioning on four occasions. Detectives searched the floorboards of Johnson's house, and on discovering that the houses in the row were connected, extended the search to the entire street. Despite a renewed search effort in 1987, Keith Bennett's body has never been found. Maureen Henley married David Smith on August 15, 1964. The marriage was hastily arranged and performed at a register office. None of Henley's relatives attended. Henley herself did not approve of the marriage, and her mother was too embarrassed because Maureen was seven months pregnant, which was heavily frowned upon during this era. The newlyweds moved into Smith's father's house. The next day, Brady suggested that the four take a day trip to Lake Windermere. This was the first time Brady and Smith had met properly, and Brady was apparently impressed by Smith's demeanor. The two talked about society, the distribution of wealth, and the possibility of robbing a bank. The young Smith was similarly impressed by Brady, who throughout the day had paid for his food and wine. The trip to the Lake District was the first of many outings. Henley was apparently jealous of their relationship, but became closer to her sister. In 1964, Henley, her grandmother, and Brady were rehoused to a part of the post-war slum clearances in Manchester to 16 Wardlebrook Avenue in the new overspill estate of Hattersley. Brady and Henley became friendly with Patricia Hodges, an 11-year-old girl who lived at 12 Wardlebrook Avenue. Hodges accompanied the two on their trips to Saddleworth Moor to collect peat, something that many householders on the new estate did to improve the soil in their gardens, which was full of clay and builder's rubble. She remained unharmed, living only a few doors away. Her disappearance would have been easily solved. 
Early on December 26, 1964, Henley left her grandmother at a relative's house and refused to allow her back to Wardlebrook Avenue that night. On the same day, Brady and Henley visited a fairground in search for another victim and noticed 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey standing beside one of the rides. When it became apparent that she was on her own, they approached her and deliberately dropped some of the shopping they were carrying close to her before asking for the girl's help to carry some of the packages to their car and then to their home. Once inside the house, Brady took obscene photographs of Leslie Ann showing her naked, bound, and gagged. Henley recorded the scene of the child's rape and torture by Brady on audio tape. The 16-minute tape contains the voices of Brady and Henley relentlessly persuading and threatening the child, who is heard crying, dry heaving, screaming, and begging to be allowed to return home safely to her mother. Henley maintained that she went to draw a bath for Leslie Ann and found the girl dead, presumably killed by Brady, when she returned. The following morning, Brady and Henley drove with Leslie Ann's body to Saddleworth Moor, where she was buried naked with her clothes at her feet in a shallow grave. The following day, Henley brought her grandmother back home. The countryside was searched, thousands of people were questioned, and missing posters were displayed, but no new leads were discovered. No one could tell Leslie Ann's parents what had happened to their little girl. By February 1965, Patricia Hodges had stopped visiting Henley and Brady at home, but David Smith was still a regular visitor. Brady gave David books to read, and the two discussed robbery and murder. On Henley's 23rd birthday, her sister and brother-in-law, who had until then been living with relatives, were rehoused to Underwood Court, a block of flats not far from the Wardlebrook Avenue. The two couples began to see each other more regularly, but usually only on Brady's terms. On October 6, 1965, the couple claimed their fifth and final victim, 17-year-old Edward Evans. They enticed him from Manchester Central Railway Station to their house in Hattersley, where Henley's brother-in-law, David, was visiting. Brady claimed that Edward was a homosexual and, on meeting him at Manchester Central Station, invited him back to their home with promises of sexual activity. It remains uncertain whether Edward was actually a homosexual or if Brady was merely trying to make a slur on the young man's character. You have to remember that at this time, homosexuality was illegal in Britain and was heavily frowned upon. For the past year, Brady had been cultivating a friendship with David, who appeared to have been brainwashed by Brady and was noting in his own diary, quote, Rape is not a crime. It is a state of mind. Murder is a hobby and a supreme pleasure, end quote. Yet in reality, he was simply mouthing phrases because he admired the older man and wanted to be his friend. However, David told Brady he was talking rubbish when he claimed he had committed murder several times. Brady and Henley had apparently staged the murder as part of David's initiation into their killing confederacy. Henley had invited David to the house one night in early October 1965 on the pretext that Brady had wanted to give him some miniature wine bottles. David was waiting in the kitchen when he suddenly heard a loud scream from the adjacent living room as Henley shouted for him to go and help Ian. David entered the room to find Brady in a murderous frenzy, repeatedly driving an axe into Edward's head before stifling his final desperate gurgling with a length of electrical cord. 
David was then asked to help clean up the blood and bits of bone and brain matter in the living room and help carry the body to the spare room upstairs and wrap it in a polyurethane bag tossed up with rope. Fearing for his life, David made an effort to maintain his composure as best as he possibly could and complied. Afterwards, Brady asked David, Do you believe me now? David then ran home and contacted the police. David explained later that while apparently giving assistance to clean up, his sole concern was to escape the house alive. Superintendent Talbot was to be leaving on a much-needed vacation the morning that he received an unexpected call from Detective Inspector Wills, who had been reluctant to make the call, but this was important. Sitting in the inquiry or interrogation room at Hyde Police Station were 17-year-old David and Maureen. They had called the police early that morning with an incredible story. Talbot assured his wife that he would soon return and they would begin their two-week vacation as planned. What Superintendent Talbot did not know was that he was about to become involved in one of Britain's most notorious criminal cases, the Morris murders. The date was October 7th, 1965. When Talbot arrived at Hyde Police Station, he was shown into the inquiry room where the distressed couple sat drinking tea. David Smith, with the help of his wife Maureen, proceeded to tell his story. The previous night, his sister-in-law, Myra Hinley, had visited the home where he lived with Maureen, his bride of a little more than a year, and her mother. Myra told him that she was afraid to walk home alone in the dark, so he agreed to walk with her. When they arrived at Myra's home at 16 Wardlebrook Avenue in Manchester, she asked him to come inside as her live-in boyfriend, Ian Brady, had some miniature bottles of wine waiting for him. He agreed. After entering, she left him standing in the kitchen with the wine. As he read the label on one of the bottles, Smith heard a long, loud scream. Myra yelled to him from the living room. When he first entered the room, he saw Ian holding what David initially thought was a life-size ragdoll. As it fell against the couch not more than two feet away from him, the realization dawned upon him that that was a young man and not a doll at all. As the young man lay sprawled face down on the floor, Ian stood over him, legs apart, holding an axe in his hand. The young man groaned. Ian lifted the axe into the air and brought it down upon the man's head. There was silence for a couple of seconds, and then the man groaned again, only it was much lower this time. Lifting the axe above his head, Ian brought it down a second time. The man stopped groaning. The only sound he made was a gurgling noise. Ian then placed a cover over the youth's head and wrapped a piece of electric wire around his neck. He repeatedly pulled the wire. Ian kept saying, you fucking dirty bastard, over and over again. When the man finally stopped making any noise, Ian looked up and said to Myra, quote, that's it. It's the messiest yet. As Henley made them all a cup of tea, she and Brady joked about the look on the young man's face when Brady had struck him. They laughed as they told David about another occasion when a policeman confronted Henley while they had been burying another one of their victims at Saddleworth Moor. Ian had told David that he had killed some people before, but David thought it was just a sick fantasy. This was real. He was horrified and scared for his own safety. He decided the best thing was to do was to keep calm and go along with them. He helped them clean up the mess, tie up the body, and put it in the bedroom upstairs. It was not until the early hours of the morning that he had been able to escape, promising to return in the morning to help dispose of the body. 
Safely back at home, he was violently sick. He told Maureen everything, and together they went to the public phone box to call the police. Superintendent Bob Talbot of the Cheshire Police arrived at the back door of 16 Wardlebrook Avenue wearing a borrowed baker's overall to cover his uniform. Talbot identified himself to Henley as a police officer when she opened the door and told her that he wanted to speak to her boyfriend. Henley led him into the living room where Brady was sitting, writing a note to his employer explaining that he would not be able to get into work because of his ankle injury, which he sustained in the altercation with Edward. Talbot explained that he was investigating, quote, an act of violence involving guns that was reported to have taken place the previous evening. Henley denied that there had been any violence and allowed police to look around the house. When they came to the upstairs room in which Edward's body was stored, the police found the door locked and asked Brady for the key. Henley claimed that the key was at work, but after the police offered to drive her to her employer's premises to retrieve it, Brady told her to hand the key over. When they returned to the living room, the police told Brady that they had discovered a trussed up body and that he was being arrested on suspicion of murder. As Brady was getting dressed, he said, quote, Eddie and I had a row and the situation got out of hand. Henley was not arrested with Brady, but she demanded to go with him to the police station, accompanied by her dog puppet, to which the police agreed. Henley was questioned about the events surrounding Edward's death, but she refused to make any statements beyond claiming that it had been an accident. As the police had no evidence that Henley was involved in Edward's murder, she was allowed to go home on condition that she returned the next day for further questioning. Henley was at liberty for four days following Brady's arrest, during which time she went to her employer's premises and asked to be dismissed so that she would be eligible for unemployment benefits. While in the office where Brady worked, she found some papers belonging to him in an envelope that she claimed she did not open, which she burned in an ashtray. She believed that they were plans for bank robberies, nothing to do with the murders. The documents also contained photographs taken at the site of Keith's murder. On October 11th, Henley was charged as an accessory to the murder of Edward Evans after police had found a three-page document in her car that described in explicit detail how she and Brady had planned to carry out the murder and was remanded at Risley. David told police that Brady and Henley had hidden evidence in two suitcases stored in a left luggage office somewhere in Manchester. British Transport Police were asked to search all of Manchester's stations and on October 15th found what they were looking for. Police later found the left luggage ticket in the back of Henley's prayer book. Inside one of the cases were nine pornographic photographs taken of Leslie Ann naked and with a scarf tied across her mouth and the 16-minute recording of her screaming and pleading for help. Police searching the house at Wardlebrook Avenue also found an old exercise book in which the name John Kilbride had been scribbled, which made them suspicious that Brady and Henley may have been involved in the unsolved disappearances of other youngsters. A large collection of photographs was discovered in the house, many of which seemed to have been taken on Saddleworth Moor. 150 officers were drafted to search the moor, looking for locations that matched the photographs. Initially, the search was concentrated along the A628 road near Woodhead, but Patricia Hodges was able to point out their favorite sites along A635 road. On October 16th, police found an arm bone sticking out of the peat. Officers presumed that they'd found the body of John Kilbride, 
but soon discovered that it was the body of Leslie Ann Downey. Ann Downey, later Ann West after her marriage to Alan West, had been on the moor watching as the police conducted their search, but was not present when the body was found. She was shown clothing recovered from the grave and identified it as belonging to her missing daughter. Detectives were able to locate another site on the opposite side of the A635 road where Downey's body was discovered. And five days later, they found a badly decomposed body of John Kilbride, whom they identified by his clothing. That same day, already being held for the murder of Edward, Brady and Henley appeared at Hyde Magistrates Court and were charged with Leslie Ann Downey's murder, which was brought before the court separately and remanded into custody for a week. They made a two-minute appearance on October 28th and were again remanded into custody. The search for bodies continued, but with winter settling in, it was called off in November. Presented with evidence of the tape recording, Brady admitted to taking photographs of Leslie Ann, but insisted that she had been brought to Wardlebrook Avenue by two men who had subsequently taken her away again alive. Brady was further charged with the murder of John and Hinley with the murder of Edward on December 2nd. At the committal hearing on December 6th, Brady was charged with the murder of Edward, John, and Leslie Ann, and Hinley with the murders of Edward and Leslie Ann, as well as with harboring Brady and the knowledge that he had killed John. The prosecution's opening statement was held on camera, and the defense asked for a similar stipulation, but was refused. The proceedings continued in front of three magisteries in Hyde over an 11-day period during December, at the end of which the pair were committed for trial at Chester Assizes. Many of the photographs taken by Brady and Henley on the moor featured Henley's dog, Puppet, sometimes as a puppy. Detectives arranged for the animal to be examined by a veterinary surgeon to determine its age, from which they could date when the pictures were taken. The examination involved an analysis of the dog's teeth, which required a general anesthetic, from which Puppet did not recover, as she suffered from an undiagnosed kidney complaint. On hearing of the news of her dog's death, Henley became furious and accused the police of murdering Puppet. One of the few occasions detectives ever witnessed any emotional response from her. In a letter to her mother shortly afterward, Henley wrote, quote, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this has. The only consultation is that some moron might have got a hold of Puppet and hurt him, end quote. In 1965, a case such as this was unique. It was the first time in British history that a woman had been involved in a killing partnership that had involved the serial sex murders of children. The public could not comprehend how any woman could take part in such a horrific crime. Her involvement made the crime seem even more evil and unforgivable. The trial was held over 14 days beginning on April 19, 1966 in front of Mr. Justice Fenton Atkinson at the Chester Assizes Crown Court. Such was the public interest that the courtroom was fitted with security screens to protect Brady and Henley. The pair were each charged with three murders, those of Edward, Leslie Ann, and John, as it was considered that there was by then sufficient evidence to implicate Henley in John's death. The prosecution was led by Attorney General Frederick Elwin Jones. Brady was defended by Emmeline Husin, and Henley was defended by Godfrey Hilpern. David was the chief prosecution witness, but during the trial, it was revealed that he had entered into an agreement with a newspaper that he initially refused to name, even under intense questioning. 
guaranteeing him 1,000 pounds, which, by the way, is equivalent to like 16,000 pounds as of 2021. So it was a lot of money back then. And this was all for syndication rights to his story if Brady and Henley were convicted, something the trial judge described as a, quote, gross interference with the course of justice, end quote. David finally admitted in court that the newspaper was the news of the world, which had already paid for a holiday to France for him and his wife and was paying him a regular income of 20 pounds per week, as well as accommodating him in a five-star hotel for the duration of the trial. Brady and Henley pleaded not guilty to the charges against them. Both were called to give evidence, Brady for over eight hours and Henley for six. Although Brady admitted to hitting Edward with an axe, he did not admit to killing him, arguing that the pathologist in his report had stated that Edward's death was, quote, accelerated by strangulation. Under cross-examination by the prosecuting counsel, all Brady would admit was that, quote, I hit Evans with an axe. If he died from axe blows, I killed him, end quote. Henley denied any knowledge that the photographs of Saddleworth Moore found by police had been taken near the graves of the victims. The tape recording of Leslie Ann, on which the voices of Brady and Henley were clearly audible, was played in open court. Henley admitted that her attitude towards the child was brusque and cruel, but claimed that that was only because she was afraid that someone might hear Leslie Ann screaming. Henley claimed that when Leslie Ann was being undressed, she herself was downstairs and when the pornographic photographs were being taken, she was looking out the window, and that when the child was being strangled, she was running a bath. How convenient. Brady made a telling slip of the tongue while being cross-examined in the witness box, telling the prosecutor that, quote, we all got dressed, end quote, after the tape had been made, which suggests that Henley was also actively involved in the sexual molestation of the child and perhaps the physical killing as well. On May 6th, after having deliberated for a little over two hours, the jury found Brady guilty of all three murders and Henley guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann and Edward. The Murder Abolition of Death Penalty Act had come into force during the time that Brady and Henley were held in prison, abolishing the death penalty for murder, and therefore, the judge passed the only sentence that the law allowed, life imprisonment. Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences, and Henley was given two plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had murdered John. Brady was taken to Durham Prison, and Henley was taken to Holloway Prison. In his closing remarks, Mr. Justice Atkinson described the murders as a, quote, truly horrible case, and condemned the accused as, quote, two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. He recommended that both Brady and Henley spend, quote, a very long time, in prison before being considered for parole, but did not stipulate a tariff. He stated that Brady was, quote, wicked beyond belief, and that he saw no reasonable possibility for reform. He did not consider that the same was necessarily true of Henley, quote, once she is removed from Brady's influence. Throughout the trial, Brady and Henley, quote, stuck rigidly to their strategy of lying, and Henley was later described as, quote, a quiet, controlled, impassive witness who lied remorselessly, end quote. Okay, addicts, although it may sound like we have wrapped up this case with a nice little bow, there is plenty more to get to and not enough time today. So come back next week to hear part two of the Moore's murders, where we dive into their imprisonment experiences, an additional investigation that took place to locate victims. Yeah, you heard that, a second investigation. 
what happened to all parties involved, and a whole lot more. In the meantime, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated. 